you just remain seated this morning as we read Eliphaz's comments in chapter 15 of Job and then Job's response in 16 and 17. Then Eliphaz the Tamanite answered and said, Should a wise man answer with windy knowledge and fill his belly with the east wind? Should he argue in unprofitable talk or in words with which he can do no good? But you are doing away with the fear of God and hindering meditation before God. For your iniquity teaches your mouth and you choose the t- and you chose the tongue of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you and not I. Your own lips testify against you. Are you the first man who was born? Or were you brought forth before the hills? Have you listened in the counsel of God? And do you limit wisdom to yourself? What do you know that we do not know? What do you understand that is not clear to us? Both the gray-haired and the aged are among us, older than your father. Are the comforts of God too small for you? Or the word that deals gently with you? Why does your heart carry you away? And why do your eyes flash that you turn your spirit against God and bring such words out of your mouth? What is man that he can be pure, or he who is born of a woman that he can be righteous? Behold, God puts trust in, puts no trust in his holy ones, and the heavens are not pure in his sight. How much less one who is abominable and corrupt, a man who drinks injustice like water? I will show you, hear me, what I have seen I will declare, what wise men have told without hiding it from their fathers to whom alone the land was given and no stranger passed among them. The wicked man writhes in pain all his days through all the years that are laid up for the, for the ruthless. Then Job answered and said, I've heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. Shall windy words have an end? Or what provokes you that you answer? I also could speak as you do if you were in my place. I could join words together against you and shake my head at you. I could strengthen you with my mouth, and the solace of my lips would assuage your pain. If I speak, my pain is not assuaged. If I forbear, how much of it leaves me? O earth, cover not my blood, and let my cry find no resting place. Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and he who testifies for me is on high. My friends scorn me, my eye pours out tears to God, that he would argue the case of a man with God as a son of man does with his neighbor. For when a few years have come, I shall go away, and from which I shall not return. My spirit is broken. My days are extinct. The graveyard is ready for me. Surely there are mockers about me, and my eye dwells on their provocation. My days are past. My plans are broken off, the desires of my heart. They make night into day. The light, they say, is near to the darkness. If I hope for Sheol as my house, 
If I make my bed in darkness, if I say to the pit, you are my father, and to the worm, my mother or my sister, where then is my hope? Who will see my hope? Will it go down to the bars of Sheol? Shall we descend together into the dust? The word of the Lord. Another profoundly uplifting passage from the book of Job. (laughs) I wish that I could snap a picture and show some of your faces when I get up here. It's just this blank stare. Like you've lost your dog. If you look at, uh, in our worship guide, uh, you might feel like you need a decoder ring to understand what our passage is, but it's quite simple. We've set it up this way to kind of cover Job in a certain way. We've been in Job for 17 chapters now. The book of Job is essentially a conversation. It's a discourse between Job and his three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, and then later on, Elihu. And then later on after that, God shows up as the fifth conversation partner with Job. We've set it up in such a way that it's easy to take Job, because it is so heavy, to, you know, touch on the first three chapters and then jump into the last five chapters where God shows up and to completely ignore the middle part. Well, we don't really even do that with movies, so why would we do that with God's Word? I think that there's something in the book of Job that requires us to stop and to move slowly and to understand what it's trying to say, because it is asking some of the deepest and most profound questions of our humanity. If you listen closely enough, you can hear these questions all around us. And so I think we recognize that when we started this, we warned you that Job can get a little laborious. It can be a little repetitive. And maybe you feel that now that we've heard all of his friends speak and now Eliphaz is speaking again. But I would challenge you to just stop for a second and to think about when was the last time you dwelled on anything? When was the last time you took time to sit and to wrestle with something? To wait until you felt like you really understood it and you got it? You know, culturally, it's just not a value that we have. It's one done, on to the next one. We value novelty over knowledge. And so this morning, uh, again, we can sit with Job in the dust and dwell with him because I think that the way God has set the book of Job up is that the only way you can really mine its treasures is if you sit with him and you dwell with him. And we do not want to just swim out into the deep end of our faith and then swim back in. We want to sink deeply into its waters. So this morning, uh, as we jump into uh, Eliphaz and Job's discussion, by way of reminder, let's not forget what we know to be true about the story of Job thus far. So what do we know to be true? Three things. One, Job's suffering was God's idea. Satan comes into heaven. God brings up Job. Satan, have you considered my servant Job, who's righteous and pure and upright? Satan says, yeah. The only reason that he actually uh, worships you and is righteous is because of all the things that you give him. Take it all away, and he'll curse you and die. He'll curse you to your face. And God says, challenge accepted. It's a wager. It's a bet as to how Job will respond in the midst of what's about to happen to him. And it was God who initiated it. Secondly, we know that Job is not suffering because he's unrighteous. There's nothing in, the, in the, God himself so that he's righteous and upright. There's nothing that Job has done to deserve his suffering. And in fact, he's suffering because he is righteous. And thirdly, we know that 
above uh, that among all the conversation partners in the book. Job is the only one who talks to God. Everybody else talks about God. Job is the only one who talks to God. So, as we step into our passage today, I kind of want to ask you a question to get an idea of where you stand. Has Job convinced you yet thus far? Has Job convinced you of how he has approached God? How he has dealt with his sorrow and sadness? Or do you kind of side with Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar and you get uncomfortable because Job says some pretty uncomfortable things to God and about God, does he not? Do you kind of find ourselves still siding with Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar's arguments? So where do you stand? Well, the one question I would ask that you would think about through the rest of our sermon is which God would you rather know? Would you rather know the God that Job is pursuing or would you rather know the God that Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar present? Now, it's easy to kind of say, well, I know Job's the good guy, so I kind of side with him. But in reality, there's a part of us that kind of sees some good points and some reasonable aspects of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar's arguments to Job. And perhaps that reason above all else is why we should continue to dwell in Job. Because there's no reason whatsoever that we should in any way find ourselves thinking the way Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar do. Because we're going to get to chapter 42, and after God speaks to Job, he says one thing to Eliphaz, and he says, Eliphaz, my anger burns against you and your two friends, because you have not spoken what is right of me, and my servant Job has. So as we start the second discourse this morning, maybe one of the reasons that you respond to kind of maybe Eliphaz's argument or maybe Bildad or Zophar is there's just something that kind of sticks with you, and it's actually what Eliphaz brings up in verse 4. So he's starting the second round of discourse where he's speaking for the second time. Couldn't persuade Job the first time, but now the second time he's sure he can do it. And he says in verse 4, he says, But Job, you are doing away with the fear of God and hindering meditation before God. Job, out of all of these things that you are saying, you are throwing the fear of God right out the window. You're being irreverent. You're being disrespectful, and you do not come that way to God. That may be something that you felt. Some issues that you've had with Job and what he said. And this is a big deal, the fear of God for Eliphaz, because he brings it up every single time that he talks. He's the fear of God guy. He's the, he's the God that doesn't tolerate insurrectionists. He's God and because he said so kind of guy. It's just simple and it's flat. But then he moves on and he begins to kind of mock Job. And he says, Job, you have no fear of God in you. And the reason I know that is because of the way that you've been talking. There's no possible way a righteous man would speak the way you do. Only wicked men come to God like that. Only wicked men come to God with those kinds of questions in their anger and their vexation. Wicked men do that, not righteous men. And you have to remember Job's argument this whole time that Eliphaz still does not understand. Job this whole time has been arguing that his his experience does not match up with the history and wisdom that has been handed down throughout the generations that Eliphaz is arguing about, and they bring up over and over and over again. And it's common, that we've talked about just by way of reminder, that the, the theology and the wisdom that Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar are presenting to Job is just retributive theology, that this view of God that is simply God blesses those who do good things and God curses those who do wicked things. That's it. 
And Job is saying, I didn't do anything wrong to deserve this suffering. There's nothing that I've done to deserve the loss of my family, my health, and my wealth, and my friends. And so he's challenging Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar and saying, my experience no longer matches up with the wisdom that's been handed down to us. And I am unsettled, and I am innocent. And he cries out to God. But Eliphaz says, how could you possibly be innocent? Because your own mouth condemns you because of the things that you say, and you have no fear of God. And that's why he then begins to talk about wisdom. And he begins to mock Job, because in ancient, uh, in ancient uh, well, Israelite literature, the fear of God and wisdom go hand in hand, Proverbs 9.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so now, if he has no fear of the Lord, now Eliphaz moves into wisdom to say, you claim to have a wisdom and, a, and an understanding of the situation that is completely different than the whole host of fathers and all the generations before us. Secondly, he says in verses 7 through 16, he's like, are you, are you the first man that was born? Were you born you know, before the mountains and the hills? Were you a part of the creation of this world? He says, are you really willing to go up against what has been handed down to us? And then he says uh, in verses 14 through 16, and this is where like Eliphaz like, is a really funny guy to try to figure out because his arguments sometimes don't make any sense. And here's why. So he's like, Job, there's no possible way that you could be talking the truth. You don't fear God, which means you don't have wisdom and you claim to have wisdom. But the truth is, if you don't have wisdom, then you're a fool. You're a fool. You're a wicked fool. And a fool is always associated with wickedness. And he's, then he reminds Job, he says, and just so you know, uh, that no one can be righteous before God. God doesn't trust anyone doesn't even trust the angels. How much less so would he trust a sinner like you with wisdom? And then in uh, 17 through 19, uh, Eliphaz goes, But now I will help you, and I will speak for God. And then he begins to talk about his wisdom. And he talks about the wicked. But let's listen, look at what he says about the wicked. He says that... Uh, he basically tells them that, um, well, he hands down the wisdom once again, and he reminds Job that even though Job has this experience, it does not refute the wisdom of the ages. And if you notice, when he goes along with the wicked, he starts talking about how uh, the wicked um, judgment will fall upon the wicked, is how he ends his argument. But if you notice before, when Eliphaz spoke, he offered Job the opportunity to repent. He said, repent, Job. Even though he didn't need to repent, he's still offering, hey, come back to God. But now, in the second time that he speaks, he doesn't offer repentance to Job. He says, Job, you are a wicked man. And behold, this will be your fate. You are a wicked man, and God will destroy you. He's prosecuting Job. And he says that he should be destroyed. But the truth is, we, we know that that's not true about Job. We know that he's a righteous man. We know that he's upright. And we know that he's pure not just by his claim, but by God's. And yes, his testimony is true, that what's happened to him has not matched up with the wisdom that they've been handed down. And so what is it that Eliphaz does not know? What's the problem with this thinking, claiming all of this wisdom? The truth is, just in short, is that Eliphaz leaves no room for experience in understanding God and in the pursuit of wisdom. Now, why is that dangerous? 
Eliphaz leaves no room for experience in the pursuit of God. He has a black and white view of the world, and he believes in just this two-dimensional God. God will bless you if you do good. He'll curse you if you do bad. So there's really no wisdom to seek in any experience whatsoever. It's just you've either done good or you've done bad based on what you get out of life. And then you can respond accordingly. This fear of God is just a respect that he can give you and take away, or he can give things and take away things. That's it. But the problem is that scriptures do not present wisdom as being that black and white whatsoever. In many ways, if you read portions of Proverbs side by side, true wisdom contradicts itself. Because wisdom is situational. Wisdom is experiential. Wisdom is circumstantial. There's no one-size-fits-all wisdom for every situation. Is that not some of the reasons why we get frustrated with the scriptures? We get in a situation that's tough and difficult, and there's no just simple answer about this is what you should do. It takes wisdom. You have to think about it. You have to seek God in the midst of that. So it can be contradicting. You think of Proverbs 26, four, four and, uh, verse 4 and verse 5. Proverbs 26, verse 4 says, it, uh, Answer a fool according to his folly and you'll become just as foolish as he is. Then over here, in the very next verse, it says, Answer a fool according to his folly, and you will persuade him and win him over. Which is it? It's both. But it's the reality that you can only come to that understanding of the world by actually asking the question. It's in our experience, oftentimes, that wisdom recognizes that the world is complex. And that in wisdom, the only way that we can solve some of its complexity is to seek God because that's the only place where wisdom can be found. And so for Eliphaz, the fear of God is the end of wisdom. But in the scriptures, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Then it points us toward God. We see his hand in every experience, every situation. Even though it doesn't add up, we can still pursue God and he will, he will meet us in that place. So wisdom is the pursuit of a deeper understanding of the world through a deeper understanding of God. And Eliphaz has done neither of those things. Neither. He spends 18 verses. He doesn't even understand how the world works. He spends 18 verses talking about how the wicked suffer. He says uh, the wicked are, um, they're never rich. They never get wealthy. Their plans come to nothing. Everything they want to do just falls apart, and they're miserable all their days. And this job is what will happen to you. Now, that is not even close to being true. He has no clue what he's talking about. He doesn't even understand the world he lives in. So how would Eliphaz actually approach and understand Psalm 73? It's the complete opposite psalm where the psalmist actually looks around at the wicked and he, see, and he envies them because of their prosperity. He says they're, they're warm and they're well-fed. All of their p- plans flourish and their riches abound over and over and over again. And then he goes one further, and he begins to talk like Job does. The psalmist says, I actually lament that I tried to keep my hands innocent. It's in vain that I tried to keep myself pure, because all it's caused is suffering. How's that for some honesty? But the psalmist shows us the path of wisdom that in the midst of a situation that didn't make sense, he pursues God. And he says, but then I wanted to understand all of this. And it was a wearisome task. I went into the sanctuary of God. 
So when life presented an experience that didn't seem to add up, the psalmist pursues God. He brings his vexation to the altar of God. But then he's even honest about it after that, when he looks back on what happened. He says, this is my favorite part, when my soul was embittered, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Sounds like Job, does it not? Nevertheless, you hold my right hand and you guide me with your counsel. And even though my flesh and my heart may fail, the Lord is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That understanding can only happen when we see the world as it is. It creates the vexation that causes us to pursue God to where we actually recognize that even though we pursue God imperfectly, he's still gracious and good, and that even though we fail, God is the strength of our heart. But you don't get there if you're never willing to be honest. And Eliphaz thinks that he's got the world figured out, you know, he's, and he's just clueless. And the problem with Eliphaz is he never even takes that first step. You know, he never even takes you know, the first step on the yellow brick road to lead to, to God. He just simply says that he has everything figured out. And his biggest problem is that he can't look around at his own life or the world. There's nothing in his life, no circumstance, no situation that causes him to actually seek after God. There's nothing that happens that creates questions that he has to take to God and to seek wisdom, to seek God himself, to seek understanding that he can't figure out on his own. And he doesn't understand that it's precisely in our experience that it's God who draws us near to him, that we might experience his wisdom and have a deeper understanding of the world. And so, of course, when Eliphaz is confronted with Job, he just gets everything backwards. Job's a righteous man. Eliphaz calls him wicked. Job, uh, Job pours out his heart to God, and Eliphaz says, stop talking. Don't say that. Be quiet. You're being disrespectful. He says that uh, God, Eliphaz says that God trusts no one, but he doesn't mind speaking for him. He tells Job to repent when he hasn't sinned, basically so that God will bless him. Because for Eliphaz, to get what you want, you just repent and God will give you blessing again. God's just a pawn. God's an errand boy. So the question becomes, who's the truly irreverent one? Who's the one that has no fear of God? It's Eliphaz. He doesn't know God. He doesn't know Job. He doesn't know the world. And he doesn't know himself. He's a fool. He knows just enough theology to be dangerous to hurt somebody else, and to hurt himself. So how does Job teach us something different? Job teaches us many things. But it's a, probably perhaps in the very place that makes us the most uncomfortable that he teaches us the most. Job continues to be honest when he begins to speak, and he reminds them once again in verse 2, yeah, guys, I've heard all of that over and over again. I've heard it my whole life. I've heard it the last three times you've talked, and none of that works. You guys have no idea what you're talking about, and all of you are miserable comforters. All of you are. You sit on your high horse, and you judge me. And then he moves on. Basically, all that to say is that Job is a lonely man. The people that he looked to find comfort have now become part of his suffering. And you see that loneliness begin to take place in the rest of chapter 16 and 17. Job, but he continues to be honest. He doesn't shrink back. He continues to be honest. And he says, you know, for 11 verses, all of the things that God has done to him. God has worn me out. Yes, he has. God has made desolate my company. Yes, he has. Men have shamed me. Yes, they have. 
He's given me over to the ungodly. Yes, they have. And then he says, God hates me. Well, no, he doesn't. Even in his imperfection, he still comes to God. He says things that aren't true. But he's honest, isn't he? As the psalmist would say, he's brutish, like a beast coming to God that's ignorant. And then he goes even worse. And I, I think the one moment out of all of this, it's verse seventeen, eleven, where my heart goes out to Job. He says, my days are cut off, my plans are broken, the desires of my heart. He's basically saying, all that I ever wanted in life is gone. All of my hopes, all of my dreams are done. There's no chance that I might ever have what was most precious to me. It was lost. And you see a broken and sad man. His experience has taken everything away from him, everything that's most precious to him, and he's all alone. But the fact that Job still continues to cry out to God is profound. Just like the psalmist, Job shows us the path of wisdom. That in his experience, even though it didn't add up, he doesn't just have this flat view of the world, but he wants to understand, and that understanding can only be found in God. And so, yes, he does come to him imperfectly, but at least he begins to walk that path towards God. Rather than going the other way, he continues to move towards him. But in that moment, as he reaches out, he reaches out his hands to God in a way that he never has before. And I think that that is the point. That's the point of this whole wager. Is that in the midst of his suffering, he would reach out to God. If you go back and you remember the wager between God and Satan, Satan said he will curse you to your face when you take all of that away. And every time Job opens his mouth, yeah, he doesn't say everything perfectly and wonderfully, but he still continues to crawl towards God every time he talks, which he proves Satan wrong every time that he does. That he will not curse. He will continue to knock and seek after God. And God wins. Because he says, Satan, even though you took everything away from him, you thought he would actually curse me, but it actually caused him to want me even more. He wanted me to the depths of his soul. And I think we see Job's desire for God in verses 19 through 22 when Job longs for a witness. And basically, he wants a witness that will stand before God and argue his case before God that I am in the right. He wants somebody to stand before God and say, no, Job is righteous. Job is righteous. And he says he wants someone that would love him to care for him. Now, if you remember a few weeks ago in chapter 9, Job says, I want an arbiter. I just want an arbiter that will come in and put hand on, his hand on God's shoulder, his hand on mine, and would just absorb all the wrath and anger of God's toward me for just long enough for us to have a conversation. He just wants a neutral party to come in and be a mediator between the two of them. But then this week, Job's imagination begins to grow, and he says, I don't want an arbiter anymore. I actually want somebody that's a witness that loves me and cares for me and knows my story well enough to go to God and say they are in the right. I want somebody that cares for me and isn't just neutral, but somebody that is positively disposed towards me. I think one of the most profound things about the book of Job is Job's imagination for Jesus. In a time where the idea of Jesus wasn't even remotely close, 
that Job, in the fog of his suffering, sees this gap between him and God, and he begins to imagine what type of person, what type of individual, what type of being could actually stand in between me and God to where God would actually listen to me, to where God would, all of his anger and his wrath would be absorbed. That is profound. His imagination for Jesus. And I think part of that is that is the very point of suffering, is that in our suffering, our desire for Jesus rises to the top. It rises to the top, and we can see what Job saw so dimly. And it's in our sufferings and it's our experiences, it's in those moments where things don't add up. God, what are you doing? That God is drawing us to himself. But the truth is, is far more often than not, we don't take that to God. We just go the other way, and we go the way of Eliphaz. We go the way of Eliphaz with this preconceived idea of how we're supposed to come to God. We come to him with platitudes. We don't wrestle with God. We just kind of put on a pious and strong face and say platitudes. So I hate my job and I'm absolutely miserable. But hey, God is good and who am I to complain? It's just my lot. Or we say I'm suffering and I'm in pain and I don't know why and I, well, I know my suffering glorifies God. I want to bring him glory. I don't want to be a complainer. We say, my marriage is a mess, but hey, God's grace is sufficient for me. And in all of these things, we just offer platitudes to cover the situation rather than actually seeking God. Saying, why? Help me understand. And that's Eliphaz's problem. The problem is, is that the faith of such a person becomes nothing more than just gritting their teeth, and then when things go wrong, you just cover it with pious platitudes. And never seeking to know God through the experience that brings him on. Never seeking to know God through the very experiences that he causes and paints his big doorways for you to come and enter into the inner sanctuary with him. For Eliphaz, you know, fearing God is just simply kind of being a quiet, subservient creature, doing what you're told, never asking questions, and doing things that uh, God wants so that you'll be blessed. All of that is great theology if God doesn't actually want to be known above all else. But he does. He wants you to know him and for him to know you. So maybe as we think about it, if we're like Eliphaz, maybe our biggest problem is that there's no circumstance and there's no situation in our life that is causing us to cry out to God in any way whatsoever. That we don't look around. We don't, we're not even willing to survey our lives enough to see the areas where we need to come to God and cry out to him so that we might meet him and know him. We just kind of go through the motions and offer the platitudes when they come along. And we grin and we bear it. And yet it's in these moments that God is precisely stirring our hearts so that he can lead us to that place where we can say, you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And in closing, I know that, um, you know, we talk a lot. We've talked about coming to God like Job, and I know that can be scary. I know that... um, it's hard to think about coming to God the way Job does with such his brutal honesty. It's kind of scary. But we have to remember what the book of Job is, okay? It's not a script. It's not trying to tell you exactly what to say to where, you know, like tomorrow, um, you know, something bad happens to you and you just, you know, he's like, God, why do you hate me? 
It's not trying to get you to say those words. You are talking about a story of a man who lost everything. Everything. And God did it to him. God allowed it to happen. It was his idea. I would think God would hate me too if I was Job. It's a picture that God does not forsake those who truly seek him, even if they come to him imperfectly. Even if they don't say all the right words. God still comes to such a one that longs to know him and to see him. He comes to those who want to know God. And the idea of pouring out your heart the way Job does can be scary. But let's think about this for a second. I was playing hide-and-go-seek with my... uh, Melissa and I were playing hide-and-go-seek with my niece a few years ago. She was three years old, so she was terrible at hiding. And um, she ran into... She ran down to the basement and ran into one of the guest rooms. And uh, we were at my parents' house. I don't have a basement in the guest room. Um, And so she ran in there, and we walked in there, and she'd actually taken the bed skirt, put it over her face as she's laying on the ground, and her body just completely, you know, just laying out, you know, from under the bed. And she thought, hey, if I can't see you, then you can't see me. I think we treat our hearts the same way. That if I can just offer a few platitudes and cover up what's really in my heart, the complexity of the sin and shame that I feel, the doubt towards God that I feel, but also this desire for God and to know God, if I can just cover up all of that with some simple platitudes or some memory verses, then God will be pleased with me. God will be pleased with me, but that's just Eliphaz's God. That's just Eliphaz's God who is simply manipulated as though God doesn't know you. That's what Job talks about. God, you created me. You know me to the depths of my being. You know me in all of my paradox and all of my oxymoronic desires that I have. They're confusing to me. You know every single ounce of me, emotionally, physically, spiritually. How irreverent is it then to pretend like it's not there and to pretend like it doesn't exist? No, because you are my God and because you put me in the situation, I'm going to bring you all that I have. I'm not going to try to cover it up as though I can dupe you into being like, as soon as I tell you my vexation, you say, oh, I didn't know that was there. I'm surprised. God wants you to come to him in the way that Job does. And the truth is, he knows you are going to come to him imperfectly. Okay, so I don't want to go down the route of Job. Okay, how else are you going to come to him? Imperfectly. What words are you going to say to come to God? To seek him, to know him. What words do you have? What actions can you do? Nothing. You will always do it imperfectly. And that is exactly why God doubles down on the very desire that Job had for a witness. He doubles down and he gives us the Holy Spirit. And what's it do? It prays before God and intercedes on your behalf when you don't even know what to pray for. Because the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God, including you. There's nothing about you that is unknown. And The Spirit who loves you intercedes on your behalf, praying the exact prayers that you need to go before God. And on top of that, the doubling down is that he also gives us Jesus, a witness that constantly points to every single one of of us that belong to him and says, righteous, 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 righteous. 
And the, the gap that Job hated and lamented has been slammed together in the person and work of Jesus. Do you know the access that you have? Once again, remember the invitation of our Savior is to come as you are. Come to me, all who are weak and weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That is not an invitation for people that are really tired of doing good works and being righteous. That is an invitation to people who are tired, feeling drowned by life, burnout, torn apart, life's a mess, marriage is a mess, my job's a mess, I hate life, I hate my kids, I hate my family, I hate everything. Even such a one can come unto Jesus and Jesus will say, I will give you rest. But don't come to me with pretense as though I don't understand who you truly are. Just bring me what you have. And then you can say, just like the psalmist said, that though my heart and my flesh may fail, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So back to our question. Would you rather serve the God of Eliphaz or would you rather come to know the God of Job? Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. Although imperfectly, we're so thankful that you did not wait for us to get our act together. We're so thankful that you did not wait for us to come to you, but you came to your enemies You came to those who rejected you, who hated you, and who ultimately would crucify you. Help us to see the magnificence of your love. Help us to see that you know us more intimately than we could possibly understand. And that when we look deep into our own hearts and offer that to you, you begin to go to work and do surgery on our hearts and help us understand that you are our greatest desire. You are more precious than anything we could ever gain or have taken away because you are our creator, our savior, and our Lord. We say all these things in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.